our scripture reading today comes from Matthew 4. If you're willing and able, would you please stand as I read verses 18 through 22. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning. I am so glad to be here with you this morning. Glad to be with so many of you in person. And um, just, I know it keeps being said, but I'm thankful for the technology that exists for people to worship with us, even if they can't be here in the room with us. For those of you in the room, if you feel comfortable, this is a time where if you want to take your mask off, you can. Um, <clears throat> I've had a heavy week. I think um, it just seems from a lot of the conversations I've had with people, there has been a lot of heaviness this week. And um, this message runs the risk of just being a story that you've heard before. It runs the risk of just kind of pinging off our hearts like you're throwing pebbles at a wall. Um, but <clears throat> I'm, it's kind of funny. I've been on steroids for the past week for like some inflammation in my back. And I can't tell that it's helped with my back that much. I can dunk on a 10 foot goal now. Um, but the, the medicine has like kept me up at night and I've just been sitting in this text and thinking about it and praying. And, um, I was telling Chuck earlier this week, often when I'm preparing for a sermon, it's like, uh, the word of God is this beam of light and I, and my heart's like a mirror. I want it to like ping off of my heart so I can give it to other people. But this week, my, my heart's been like a window and it's been going in my heart. And yet I find when I try to put words to what it is that God's stirring up in me, it's difficult. So I would ask you as we get going, pray for me that I have the words to say, and I will pray for you that through me or despite me, that God will speak to you and maybe he'll stir your heart up too. So let's pray. <clears throat> Holy God. We come with different emotions, different cares, different burdens. There are some who are mourning this morning. There are some who are sick. There are some who are angry. There are some who are questioning if you exist. Others question if you're good. God of all comfort, we need you. Would you come to us this morning and speak to us through your word about your son, Jesus Christ, and what it means when he calls us? We ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I've been uh, chewing on this, 
It's kind of like the, the origin story of Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And it hit me, we love origin stories. Um, in the movies and in fiction, we love it. We like to hear how Bruce Wayne became Batman. We like to hear how Anakin became Darth. And spoiler, Anakin becomes Darth. Sorry if I ruined that for you. And... Um, even, even we like hearing the stories of like iconic couples. I found myself just Googling iconic couples and thinking, I wonder if I know their love story. So there's like, you know, JFK and Jackie O and Johnny and June and, you know, Prince William and Kate, there's Joe and Rita. We just <laughs> love hearing the stories of these iconic couples and seeing the cute pictures of when they're dating. <clears throat> And we love hearing stories of great people before they became great. And no one's very interested in a story where a kid just kind of has everything handed and everything's easy and success just comes. We like stories with humble beginnings. My favorite composer is a man named Philip Glass, and he's uh, probably the most renowned living American composer in the classical world. But before he was all of that, he was a plumber and a cab driver in New York. That's what he did to fund his tours, and he wasn't getting commissions, so that's how he afforded to make music. And in 1976, when Glass was already starting to make a name for himself because he had a breakthrough opera called Einstein on the Beach, he was installing a dishwasher in someone's home, and he looked up to find Robert Hughes, the art critic of Time magazine, staring at him in disbelief. And Hughes said, you're Philip Glass. What are you doing here? And it's funny to hear Philip Glass tell this story because he's a little bit sarcastic. And he's like, it was very plain that I was installing his dishwasher. And, and so he said, well, I'm installing this dishwasher. And he said, but you're an artist. And Philip Glass said, I explained that I was an artist, but that I was sometimes a plumber as well. And that he should go away and let me finish. And my favorite Philip Glass' story is he was driving a cab in New York near where his opera was literally in production, and he's got his name on the window, and this woman comes up and taps on the glass, and he, he like rolls the window down or whatever, and she says, you have the same name as a very famous composer. Humble beginnings. Um, and we're looking at the humble beginnings of four of the most important people in the history of the world and certainly in the history of the church. And we get a little snapshot of St. Peter before he was St. Peter. And we see John before he was a gospel writer. And we see James before he was a martyr. But we don't get as much as I would like. Um, I mean, as you read this, it's just five verses. Don't you wish you could know more? Don't you wish you could have some context or some backstory? Because... All we know is Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And by the way, that, that word for men, anthropos, it's where we get our word anthropology. It can mean men or women. So follow me and I'll make you fishers of people. Well, that's a weird thing to say to somebody, right? I think if someone said that to me and I had no context for it, I wouldn't be like, I'm with this guy. But they drop everything immediately and follow him. And we're left with so many questions like, was this the only conversation that happened? Did they know each other already? Is there backstory? The Gospel of Luke 
in his account of this same call, he gives a few additional details. Peter owned a fishing boat and Jesus had taught from it prior to calling to the disciples. And Luke also gives us the detail that James and John were partners, were assuming business partners with Peter. But still, I have more questions. What do you tell your father? What did James and John tell their father? And what did Zebedee say? Was he angry or was he like, guys, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I get it. You've got to go. What did Peter tell his wife? I hope he told her something. What's clear is that Jesus called them and Luke says they left everything and followed him. And as we look at this text this morning, rather than giving you three points, I'm going to ask three questions and I'm going to attempt to answer them. So the first question is this, what was Jesus calling them to do when he called them? What was Jesus calling them to do? And the answer, Jesus was calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to be his disciples. Boom. First question out of the way. We got it. That's the first point. He was calling them to be disciples. So the second question is what does it mean to be a disciple? And friends, that's going to take a little more time to explain because if you've, if you've grown up in the church or been around it for any time at all, you've probably heard the terms disciple, discipleship, disciple making. And if you ask any two people, probably even here at Orangewood, what that means, you're probably going to get slightly different answers. And that's, that's not necessarily a criticism. It's just an observation because the term has become very broad and over time it's harder to define. But since Jesus was calling these fishermen to be his disciples in Galilee in the first century, I want to take some time looking at what it meant to be a disciple in that particular time and place. And I want to start with two disclaimers. One is I'm going to be talking about some first century Jewish history that we find from sources other than scripture. And what I want you to know is I'm not trying to communicate to you in the least that if you don't understand that stuff or don't know it, that you don't know how to be a Christian. Everything we need for life in Christ is in the scriptures. But I do think if we can understand the historical context, it makes it a bit richer. The second disclaimer is that I'm not an expert on first century Judaism, although I hope by the end of my days I can say that I am. There's a teacher named Ray Vanderlein who has greatly influenced me and sparked my passion for learning about these things. And much of what I'm sharing with you this morning is uh, me sort of sharing his hard work and his hard study. So if you want to know more about this stuff, Ray Vanderlein is a great place to start. <clears throat> but having said that, let's go to first century Galilee. I told you that by calling Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him, Jesus was calling them to be his disciples. In Jewish culture, a person who would have disciples was called a rabbi. And I'm sure many of you know that. Many of you have heard that term before. In Jesus' time, the term rabbi didn't actually specifically refer to a certain occupation or a role, but it meant something like great one or my master. It was a term of respect and reverence. 
But following the destruction of the temple, which was in 70 AD, so about 40 years after our story today, it became to be more narrowly defined as a teacher of the Hebrew scriptures. And so uh, it came to be more what we think of as a rabbi. But it was already headed that way. And I believe Jesus was already starting to be seen, not just as someone worthy of respect, but as someone who is an authority of the Hebrew scriptures. He was called rabbi by lots of people in scripture. Sometimes we see it in our English Bibles translated as teacher, but he was called rabbi, not just by his disciples, but by ordinary people he would run into. And even the Pharisees and the Sadducees who didn't like him at all, they still called him rabbi. So Jesus, uh, he fits the descriptions of a first century rabbi. Some of the hallmarks are uh, rabbis, at least the famous rabbis, traveled from city to city. And they traveled with disciples following them. They taught in synagogues. Jesus did all of these things. And additionally, Jesus' teaching style was consistent with the teaching techniques that rabbis were trained in. For example, Jesus, as you know, spoke in parables. That was very common of rabbis. And uh, sometimes we get frustrated because someone will ask Jesus a question. And we're like, oh, that's a good question. I want to hear what he's going to say. And he'll respond with a question. That was part of what the rabbis did. They were actually trained to reply to questions with questions. And you can go much deeper into all of this if you're interested. And again, I recommend Ray Vanderline for a place to start with that. But much of what we know about Judaism in Jesus' day is from a book called the Mishnah. And it was written in the second century AD. So Jesus is first century. Mishnah was written in second century. And it consists largely of interpretations of scripture from rabbis. Uh, So it's almost, you can think of it sort of like we think of commentaries. But Jewish scholars believe that it contains the oral traditions present during the first century BC. So the century before Jesus up through the second century, and therefore it would reflect what was true during Jesus' lifetime. I don't know if I lost you on that, but basically there's a bunch of oral traditions during Jesus' lifetime that get recorded after his lifetime. So we're basing some of this stuff on that. The Mishnah discusses in detail the education of Jewish kids in Galilee, which is what uh, Miss Maggie was talking about. And this is the path that would lead someone to become a rabbi. So I want to show you how it aligns with what we know of Jesus. Uh, One thing that I think is interesting is both boys and girls went to school in Galilee, but only the most gifted of the boys continued their education past the age of 15. And by the age of 15, most girls were already married. So I'm going to briefly highlight the phases of education, and I've given some ages, but keep in mind they're approximate. So at about five years old, The Mishnah says the children were fit for scripture. And what this means is that they would go to the local synagogue, which was taught by a rabbi that the community paid. And this was called Bet Sefer, uh, which means house of the book. And here's a little free, quick Hebrew lesson. Anytime you're reading the Bible and you come across a word that has Beth in it, uh, it's pronounced Bet in Hebrew. That means house. So Bethel means house of God or house of the Lord. Um, and Beth, Bethlehem, Lachem means bread, house of bread. Beth Seda means house of Seda. I don't actually know what Seda means. Um, so 
Beth Safer, House of the Book. And this was sort of like elementary school for them. They went five days a week and they spent their days reading and, uh, or learning to read and learning to write. But the main thing they did is they studied the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. And by the time this was complete, they would have the Torah memorized. I want you to think about that. That's about 10 or 11 years old. They have the entire Torah memorized. For most students, this was the end of their education. Uh, After this, all girls would stay home and learn how to do what their mom did. Most boys, if they weren't star students, would stay home with their father and learn a trade. But the most gifted male students would continue on to a secondary school called Bet Talmud. And that means house of learning. This lasted from around the ages of 10 to 14 And they studied the rest of the Hebrew scriptures so that by the time they're 14, if they were successful and they had done well, they would have the entire Old Testament memorized. I just want you to think about that. During this time, at age 12, a boy would participate in his first Passover. So there's a story that you might remember uh, in Luke 2 where Jesus... uh, his parents are looking for them, for, for Jesus, and they can't find him. And he's in the temple and he's talking with teachers and they're blown away by how much he knows. <clears throat> if you remember, how old was he? He was 12. And why were they at the temple? They were in Jerusalem, which is not close to where they lived because they were there for the Passover. So this is most likely Jesus' first Passover. And already his Galilean education, he's showing it off to the teachers. And I want you to understand something. Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. So he didn't get like the Old Testament on a hard drive that he could upload into his brain. He had to go to school and study and memorize and work hard. And we see from his Uh, interactions with the teachers in the temple that he was probably a good student. So after Bet Talmud, the best male students continued their study in Bet Midrash, which means house of study. And during this time, they would also learn their father's trade. I think the reason by this point they would learn their father's trade is because most people didn't make it past this. They studied the oral Torah and the oral Torah were interpretations of the Torah that they believed had been handed down from Moses himself. And many of Jesus debates that he has with the scribes, if you remember from our series with Mark, he was always, uh, people were always trying to argue with him. The scribes and the Pharisees were telling him, why are your disciples doing this? You can't do this. And sometimes we look at it and it's like, well, the Bible doesn't say anything about picking grain on the Lord's day. Well, that stuff comes from the oral Torah. That's where they take the law and then put more laws and more laws and more laws on it. After Beth Midrash, a very few of the most outstanding students sought permission to study with a famous rabbi and usually... This required leaving home to travel with him for a lengthy period of time. And these students were called disciples. Often parents would go and try to find the best rabbi for their kids, much like parents still try to go find the best school for their kids. But most students were rejected. 
If you think about it, Beth Midrash is kind of like you've just gotten your master's degree, but following a rabbi, that's like you're getting your PhD. You're devoting yourself to this. So most students were rejected. And when they would ask a a rabbi if they could follow them, the disciple would say, may I follow you? And the testing period might last up to weeks because the the rabbi is not just trying to figure out, does does this kid know the Bible? He's trying to figure out, is he serious about this? Does he have what it takes to be like me? And if he found that he did, he would say, come follow me. And when a rabbi chose someone to be his disciple, the disciple's goal was to become like the rabbi, not just learn some things from the rabbi, not just be influenced by the rabbi, but become like the rabbi. And so the disciples, when we talk about being followers, they literally followed the rabbi. They literally ate when he ate. They literally slept when he slept. It's even written that they went to the bathroom when he went to the bathroom. It's said that disciples followed their rabbis so closely that they walked in his dust, meaning as he walked the roads of Galilee and the dust kicked up from his sandals, they were following so closely behind that they were in his dust. So why does this matter? Um, I've told you a lot of history and facts, and you can believe all of it and still not believe anything about Jesus. So why does this matter? It matters, first of all, because all point, all things point to the fact that Jesus was a rabbi in the strictest sense of the word. He checks all the boxes, plus more that I haven't even mentioned. In the Mishnah, it says, at the age of 30 is when you can become a rabbi. When did Jesus start his public ministry? At the age of 30. When a rabbi took disciples on their interpretation of scripture and their way of life was called their yoke. That's what the disciples were to imitate. They were supposed to take on their yoke. And in Matthew eleven twenty nine, Jesus says to his followers, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Jesus was a rabbi. And if that's true, it explains to us what Jesus meant when he called Peter, Andrew, James, and John to follow him. So it makes sense that their response wasn't to tell their dad that they might be back for dinner. They knew, they understood the call to follow Jesus required that they leave everything behind. They knew that nothing would be the same. And I want to ask you, no matter how old you are, if you're eight or if you're 78, whatever phase of life you find yourself in, what would have to be offered to you in order for you to pick up and leave everything? What would have to be offered you to pick up and leave everything? Maybe it's your dream job, but it means you'll have to move to San Francisco. Or maybe you or someone you love has a disease and there's a treatment for it, but it requires that you're going to have to move overseas for an indefinite amount of time. Or maybe you're promised true love, a soulmate, but it means you're going to have to pick up and give up on your goals and your dreams in order to have it. 
For these four young fishermen, something so compelling was offered to them that they left everything, and it says they left immediately. There must have been something about Jesus. There must have been something about Jesus. He was a different kind of rabbi than the other ones that they had known. Because Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they were fishing. They weren't in school. James and John were with their father. So what does this tell us about their fitness to be disciples of one of the famous rabbis? It means they didn't make the cut. Maybe they didn't even make it to Bet Midrash. But that's who Jesus called to be his disciples, the ones who didn't make the cut. I want you to imagine if you were a dancer and you had devoted your life to it, but you had gone just about as far as your talent could take you and you're getting older and you realize probably you don't have what it takes to be a professional. Probably the best shot you have is to be a teacher in a local studio. And then today, the New York Ballet calls you up and says, we want you to be a soloist for this season. But you have to decide now and you have to move today. That just kind of begins to scrape the surface of what Jesus had set before these four fishermen. And he flipped the script because They didn't come asking Jesus to be his disciples. Jesus went to them and called them. Jesus chose them. In John 15, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. He chose them to fish for men. And think of what that means to fish for men. Uh, This is... Again, a subversive, radical kind of rabbi that says we're going to fish for men because rabbis were supposed to be selective. They were supposed to pick the best students, the brightest, the spiritual elite. But Peter, Andrew, James, and John, they fished with large nets. And you can't discriminate what you're catching and what you're throwing back when you have a net. When Jesus invites them to be fishers of men, he casts the net and says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. And Rabbi Jesus has chosen many of you and called to you and says, come follow me. Which brings me to my third question. The first question was, What was Jesus calling them to do? And the answer is he was calling them to be disciples. The second question was, what does it mean to be a disciple? And in short, it means that you follow in the dust of your rabbi, going where he goes, becoming like him in every way. And the third question is this, what does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? What does it mean for you to be a disciple of Jesus? And I can only partially answer that for you. In a very real sense, it means precisely the same thing for you as it did for those four fishermen in the first century. The call to be a disciple of Christ is the call to follow in the dust of Jesus, 
going where he goes, doing what he does, and seeking to become like him in every way. And I realize how that may sound, and yet I mean it quite literally that I believe that is the call on us to be disciples of Christ. For the four fishermen to heed the call meant to leave behind their family, to leave behind their jobs, to leave behind everything that was normal for them, to leave everything that was safe for them. It meant to follow a physical man in the flesh to physical places. And so it has to mean something different for us today in our context. But I think saying yes to this invitation requires a sacrifice of some sort. The message of the gospel is one covered in grace. And I hope that that's not the first time that you've heard that from this pulpit. We want you to know that the gospel begins and ends with grace. There is nothing you have to do to earn your salvation because everything that is required for eternal life has been accomplished by Jesus Christ, period. But to embrace the gospel, to follow Jesus is costly. It's a strange paradox. We don't see any stories in scripture of people repenting and having faith in Jesus and then their lives go on as they did before. In Matthew 13, 44, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. In some strange way, it's not that following Jesus cost us nothing. It's that following Jesus reorients our lives in such a way that the worth of the gospel makes everything else seem worthless in comparison. So you've got to think it would be a hassle to sell everything you have. And it would be sad. There would be grief involved in letting go of family heirlooms. And letting go of little trinkets that are sentimental to you. But the man who bought the field, it says he sold all he had in joy. Because he knew the great worth of what he was getting in exchange. But it did cost him, didn't it? At this point in my sermon, I had planned to give a sports analogy, which if you know me, you know, is kind of a stretch. Um, I mean, I've talked about ballet and opera today, uh, but I, I wanted to be relatable and hopefully crack a joke that would break up the sermon. But I decided I want to tell you about a story that I read this morning. It was about a 14 year old girl in Uganda named Susan who converted to Christianity And when she converted, her father, who is a Muslim, beat her and threatened her life repeatedly for months and tried to get her to deny Christ. And this little 14-year-old girl would not deny Christ. And so they lived in a mud shanty and he locked her in a room And she was there for six months before neighbors realized what was going on and called the authorities. And when she was rescued, she weighed 45 pounds. 
She couldn't walk. She couldn't talk. Her hair had turned yellow. And that girl, Susan, she's 20 years old today. She's had multiple surgeries and she has another one coming when she's 21. And right now she still can't walk. But you don't have to walk to follow Jesus. And after she went through all of that, she is still following Jesus. And it throws things into perspective. Um, So I ask you this morning, as Jesus says to you, come follow me, what would it, what would it cost to follow? What's the, what's the thing in your heart that burns? Says, I think that's what it would mean. I think today, not 20 years ago when I made a decision, but today to still pick up my cross and follow Jesus, I think this might be what it means. What's the net that you have to drop? What's the boat that you would have to leave behind? Who's the father that you would have to say goodbye to? To be a disciple of Jesus, to truly follow him will always be costly, but it costs some more than others. We are so privileged We are so blessed that we can come into a room and do this. Susan lost the love of her earthly father. She suffered pain and loneliness and abuse. She lost the use of her legs. I imagine she struggled with PTSD for years and maybe always will. And I hope that rather than minimizing whatever it is that we may have to give up in order to follow the rabbi, I hope it will embolden you to help you see the infinite worth of Jesus who calls. To follow Jesus, some of you may literally need to get out of a job or leave an industry or end a relationship or speak to a relative. And the fear, it's real. You might be rejected. You might not be able to pay your bills. You might look like a black sheep in your industry. You might feel like a fool. But you won't be alone. Because you're following the rabbi. Where the spirit of the living God goes. That's who you're following. He goes where you go. And Jesus in John 15 told his disciples. If the world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated you. And I almost think he said that with a chuckle. It hated me first. But will any of you come to the end of your days and regret following Jesus? No. Our regrets will be looking back on the days that we chose not to follow him. We look at Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and it inspires us. Like That's, that's the kind of Christian I want to be. That's the kind of follower I want to be. But by the standard of the American dream, they were failures. They didn't start businesses. They didn't store up wealth. They didn't pull themselves up by their bootstraps. They picked up their cross and they followed Jesus. James was the first apostle martyred. He was put to the sword by Herod Agrippa. Peter crucified upside down. 
Andrew crucified on a cross turned on its side so that it was an X. John boiled alive and then exiled to Patmos. But those four fishermen got to be part of the work that Jesus was doing and the story that God was writing. And I want that. I want that for me. I want that for you. I don't want to be okay being a nominal Christian. And pastors can be nominal Christians. Encounters with Jesus. These four men who were probably really teenage boys, I don't have time to get into it, but there are lots of scriptural reasons to believe that Peter was probably the oldest and he might have only been 19. They had an encounter with Jesus that transformed them and messed up their plans and it changed the trajectory of their lives. And this morning, you're not hearing about an encounter with Jesus. You're having one. The call to Jesus is a literal call to me and to every one of you. Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me. Follow me. That is the call of Jesus. I can't tell you what to do with that. I've wrestled all week long with what it means for me. But I know whatever it costs, I want to do it. And I want you to do it too. Let's pray. Lord God Almighty, it is beyond me why a perfect man with perfect power and perfect love and perfect peace would come after the broken and the imperfect, would come after a man like me who thinks horrible thoughts and says horrible things and forgets you so often. And yet, just like Peter and Andrew and James and John, you have called me. And for so many of my brothers and sisters in this room, you've called them. Let us remember our first love and not chalk our salvation up to youthful sensationalism, but believe that the fire you put in our hearts that would compel us to say Jesus is Lord when we first said it is the same fire that burns now that you're calling us to be something, something that the world can see that points to you. Set us apart, Lord, for any of any of the people who might be hearing this and struggling to even know if you're real, I pray that you would call in a way that they can hear. And I pray that they would answer. I pray that we would walk in the dust of our rabbi, Lord Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen.